Welcome back, shit-givers. This is Important Not Important, and I'm Quinn Emmett. There's these metaphors that sum up a lot of what we're trying to do here, and what needs to be done. So, walk and chew gum at the same time, or build an airplane and fly it at the same time. To use some more practical real-world examples, uh, for climate change, we need to mitigate further damage and also adapt to baked-in damage. We need to decarbonize as fast and as comprehensively as possible, but also find the most transparent and measurable and effective ways to actually suck the existing carbon out of the sky. We need to find new and better antibiotics, but also cut down drastically on the number of ones we use today in people and animals. We need to feed more people healthier food on less land while we prevent deforestation and reforest where we can and with native carbon-sucking trees. We need to train millions more black doctors and nurses while finding ways to, today, drastically improve biases and outcomes throughout the current healthcare system. We need to remove dark money from the political system while also making sure the candidates who are committed to doing so, from top to bottom, are well-funded enough to actually win elections and get into office. We need to deal with this pandemic while we plan and prepare for the next one. We need to replace every vehicle on the planet with an electric one, but also increase public transportation participation with more lines and dedicated lanes and more reliable service to more places. We need to hand out scholarships and green cards to every scientist and graduate who wants one, but also make sure current citations reflect a wider canvas of lived experiences than we already do. And for today's conversation, we need to design and implement standardized AI ethics regulations across everything AI touches. So everything, while also asking questions like, what is ethical? And who gets to decide? Why did they get to decide? And how are they incentivized to decide and write those ethics in today's society? Who provides those incentives? Who gets to regulate all of this? Who elects the regulators? And how do we make sure companies actually implement all of this when they're designing tools on deadlines? So one, yes, in case you're wondering, it's super fun to be married to me. And two, these are among the most important questions of our time because AI, like climate, touches everything you do. And we're gonna get into some of those examples today. Today's a broader conversation about this, uh, the beginning of hopefully a series of conversations like these. Think about it, the phone in your hand, your insurance, your mortgage, your flood and your wildfire risk, which both affect your mortgage and your insurance, your electronic health records, your face, your fingerprint, your taxes, your police records, those Instagram ads for the upsettingly comfortable sweatpants, your 401k, the point is, some version of AI, whether it's the AI we always thought was coming or not, or more likely today, some version of machine or deep learning, is integrated into every part of your life. You are training those algorithms every day, and you are at the behest of them. So I don't think it would be some groundbreaking reveal to you folks to reveal that these incredible technologies are being implemented and profited from at light speed without 
very much say from you about any of it. And when I really need to go deep on this subject, on AI, on the ethical front, on the practical implementation side, there's one place I turn, and that's the Montreal AI Ethics Institute. They help me ask better questions. And because, like climate, again, AI touches everything, their excellent analysis has really actually helped me level up so much on all of this stuff. So my guest today is Abhishek Gupta. And Abhishek is the founder and principal researcher at the Montreal AI Ethics Institute. And they are an international nonprofit research institute in one of my favorite cities, Montreal. This whole thing is just a lure for me to be able to visit him. Um, and they've got a mission to democratize AI ethics literacy. Abhishek works in machine learning. He serves on the CSE Responsible AI Board at Microsoft, where his work helps solve among the toughest technical challenges at Microsoft's biggest customers. In case you're wondering how I'm going to make this even more interdisciplinary than it already is, through his work as the chair of the Standards Working Group at the Green Software Foundation, Abhishek leads the development of the Software Carbon Intensity Standard towards a more comparable and interoperable measurement of the environmental impacts of AI systems. We didn't even get to that today, so we'll do that another time. His work focuses on applied technical and policy measures for building ethical, safe, and inclusive AI systems, and truly has been recognized by governments across the world. Lastly, and more pertinent to you guys here, and we've noted them in the newsletter a thousand times, he is the author of the widely read AI Ethics Brief and the State of the AI Ethics Reports, the most recent of which, the sixth volume, has just dropped, and which I've annotated heavily and is a part of our discussion today. As a reminder, you can always reach the show at questions at importantnotimportant.com, or you can reach me on Twitter at importantnotimp or at Quinn Emmett. Let's go talk to Abhishek. Abhishek, welcome to the show. Hey, great to be here on Quinn. Excited to talk about AI and, and a whole host of other things with you today. Yeah, I imagine we'll dive right into Star Trek. It'll be great. Abhishek, <laughs> we'd like to start with one important question to try to set the tone for this fiasco. Instead of asking for your entire life story, as exciting as I'm sure that is, I like to ask the question, Abhishek, why are you vital to the survival of the species? And I encourage you to be bold Ooh. and honest. You're here for a reason. So I can be a little bit like our last defense against the Terminator, you know, both metaphorically and hopefully realistically, too. I mean, the machines are marching on us, right? Aren't they? Uh, or at least it seems to be with all the hype around AI in out there in the wild. So I hope to be that last defense, that last gunslinger out in the wild protecting us before the machines completely turn us into little batteries. And now these are all mixed metaphors, right? I'm mixing up Terminator, Matrix, and all the other cool sci-fi that we have going on for us. That's perfect. I just started watching the other day the new Matrix movie without giving it away. I don't know if you've seen it yet, but, you know, they do the thing where he's 
in the goo and they've got them plugged in 50 different ways. And I was like, I feel like we're closer to that than we've ever been before. Like, it's just a matter of time. I mean, think about all the hype around putting on a HoloLens, putting on, you know, an Oculus. That's that's getting us there, isn't it? I mean, I, I was reading this very scary quote, which is that once you're inside a womb, right, with all your needs met, mm-hmm. why would anyone ever want to leave? Right. And and that is a scary thought. I mean, you know, we have a biological example for that, right? A baby is perfectly comfortable being, you know, having all their needs met, perfect temperature, mm-hmm. everything. That's what's scary about all this is that we're kind of numbing ourselves into that with the perfect set of entertainment, hand curated stuff. Here's what you should buy. Here's what you should listen to. Here's who you should be friends with. In fact, I just finished reading this past weekend, Fahrenheit 451. And, you know, I kind of feel like, you know, I missed the boat on it the first time around, right? Mm -hmm. I guess I wasn't born then. But That had a fascinating thing with, you know, the parlor, you know, where you get fed this perfect mix of propaganda and entertainment and connection and people are just numb, right? They've forgotten what it means to think critically, apart from all the book burning and everything else that goes on there. It's just, as you said, we're we're closer to all of this than we think we are. It's pretty wild. Well, I couldn't think of anybody better suited in a thousand different ways to be our last line of defense against the Terminator. So I'm so excited it's you, and I will be right behind you. As I talked about in in the intro, one of the reasons I, besides just being a super nerd, right, why I feel like this conversation, which is could be you know, an infinite number of conversations going down a number of different rabbit holes and branches of the tree is so important is because however you want to define AI, artificial intelligence, whether it looks like what we thought it would look like, Star Trek, or anything else, it is in every part of our lives, which is a lot like when I have these climate discussions, which is like there's no climate discussion. It it applies to everything, everywhere. It impacts your life in every different way, in ways you can't even imagine, like the jet stream down to the air you breathe and the water you drink and whether your street floods on a sunny day. But AI has been interesting, right? Again, however you want to define it in the past or science fiction or in reality or processing power, it's had these moments over the decades, right, of sort of being this mirage that's constantly out of reach. It would come forward and then it would hibernate and we'd have these AI winters as they describe it, right? But now, besides just already being a part of all of our lives for the past five, six, seven years, tech is leaving research labs and the hands of the folks who develop it and being capitalized on immediately and in ways that the original folks who'd worked on them couldn't even have imagined. And maybe they agree with or they don't. Maybe they're the ones bringing out of labs. The point is, I'm so curious because your group has been so helpful to me, but I'm curious, when did it become clear to you, sort of, I wonder if there's this moment of intuition of, hey, we're not talking about the ethics side of this enough. I've got to do something about this. Like, when was it I need to start putting this conversation out in the world more. And how did you come up upon the idea of building the Montreal Group? I think the moment was pretty clear for me, right? It was in the summer of 2017. I was at the UN ITU, so the International Telecommunications Union, for the inaugural AI for Good Global Summit in Geneva. And 
this was to contextualize the landscape a year before the GDPR came into effect, right, which was May 2018. So Europe was all abuzz with privacy, data rights, and, and all of those associated things. I think for those of us who remember, uh, you know, we got a thousand email notifications asking us to consent to things and, you know, for services that we didn't even remember signing up for in the first place. So, mm-hmm. so there's mm-hmm. that. But also for those of us who were involved in, you know, helping transition our products and services to become GDPR compliant, right? So there was a big buzz and momentum around it. But when I came back to Canada after that trip to Geneva, I found that the Canadian landscape was highly fragmented and there were very few and far between pockets where conversations on the societal impacts of technology, but more specifically AI, were taking place. And this was right around the time when Canada was also, at least in the public consciousness, bursting onto the scene with AI. And that came on the heels of the announcement of Element AI, which was one of the biggest success stories at that time on the Canadian AI scene, uh, you know, was backed by uh, Joshua Bengio, some of the other well-known founders in the Montreal startup ecosystem. And that was when I realized, hey, by the way, why don't we have a sort of coherent national discussion around uh, some of these impacts is clearly this technology is very powerful. There isn't that much doubt about that, right? Sure. It seems odd now to think that, well, how is it that the ethical discussions weren't mainstream? They just weren't. Uh, uh, that was the state of affairs. And, and we've had, I think, a significant push over the last, I would say, two and a half years where we've seen, you know, a lot more popular media coverage, a lot more discussions, groups around the world. Back then, it wasn't the case. And another thing that I realized was accessing those small, few and far between pockets. There were quite a few barriers for people to participate in those discussions, even those who came in with specialized knowledge or with backgrounds in this space, such as myself. There were two sorts of barriers. There were were self-erected barriers. So for folks who self-selected themselves out because they thought that, hey, I need a PhD in math or computer science to be able to meaningfully contribute to these conversations. And on the other side, there were barriers erected by those who were holding those conversations. So, you know, quote unquote, the gatekeepers who you needed to come with a wanted set of credentials or you know, be from certain backgrounds to be able to participate. And so it started really as an experiment in that summer where I thought, hey, let's band together with a few other folks who are interested and open these discussions up for people to come and articulate why they're concerned, what their hopes, aspirations, fears, and concerns are. And it grew into a movement from there, right? Uh, we, We started to, just through word of mouth, become this place that was a safe haven, a welcoming embrace for people coming from all walks of life, really, uh, with either a very deep background in this space or with no background in this space. Mm -hmm. But what they did find was that we were willing to work together to elevate the level of discourse, to provide nuance to the conversation. So we weren't talking about Skynet and Terminators coming after you. Right. Even though I would love to be the last defense. hundred percent. We've made that clear. <laughs> but we were talking about very real concerns. Right. And we were talking about not hypotheticals. We were talking about systems that were currently deployed and are currently being deployed and what those realistic impacts are, because the impacts were very real on people who were sometimes even present in the room. Right. They had experienced 
algorithmic discrimination. They had been, you know, denied, for example, credit, amongst other things. And, and that was really, I think, a moment where we realized that, hey, what we're trying to do here is bringing value and, and is, a, is an effective mechanism, you know, to borrow the term from uh, the tech ecosystem to scale, right? Mm-hmm not in a gimmicky way, but in, a, in an impactful and meaningful way in the sense that the nuance that we were bringing, people had the opportunity to take this back with them to their communities, to their organizations, to their work, their colleagues, their families, and help everybody be more informed because we wanted to create these local champions, these advocates for this conversation. So that really, for me, was the time when I realized, hey, there are lots of other people who've thought about some of these issues, for example, Mm -hmm. clinicians thinking about informed consent, so we don't always have to reinvent the wheel. Let's sure. let's stand on the shoulders of giants. I love that. And I thank you for having that moment of clarity and realizing you needed to put something together. It's remarkable that firewall of people who self-select themselves out of these things because they don't believe that they have the credentials or the skills or the corporate rank or whatever it might be to contribute to this discussion. And on the other side, there's the gatekeepers going like, you're exactly right. You don't have the credentials and you don't have the positions to contribute to that discussion. Holding on that for a second, because you know your other point was we have this history of for instance, the the healthcare segment saying we've got consent, we've got HIPAA, we've got these things like we don't we don't have to reinvent the wheel. And at the same time, as much as those processes are there, we know that two things: one, they certainly don't work perfectly. We've got all these ethical issues across so many different systems in our world. But at the same time, we can build on them and we can do better to make those more inclusive. Because again, AI touches everything and is only going to continue to be that way. I think back and I feel like you and I connected very quickly on how nerdy we both are and how deep we go on on sort of like this pseudo utopian idea of Star Trek and all these different things. And I feel like your moment of clarity where you were like, I have to start these conversations. It's a similar feeling I had when I stumbled upon your work and was like, oh, this is for me. Like, I need this as, like I said, a liberal arts major who's doing this job of trying to help folks ask better questions and then provide actionable, measurable advice in a direction. It's so helpful because you guys are trying to do both, right? You're trying to instigate and nourish the conversations about what are these ethics and what does it mean and what can we learn from prior sectors and prior examples of something coming to fruition so quickly and so overwhelmingly, but also trying to say like, yes, but also what are the practices we have to put into place while we're having these discussions because it's rolling down the hill. And so I've learned so much from you guys and and there's some great books that have come out in the past couple of years. We had on Dr. Carissa Valise who wrote a book called Privacy is Power, which is fantastic and Atlas of AI, I really enjoyed and Alignment Problem, which speaks to basically our entire society, which is the whole thing, right? But I also think back to these books and that I grew up with, like Heinlein, Moon is a Harsh Mistress, and iRobot in some discussions, and the new stuff like uh, Clara and the Sun, which if you haven't read is fantastic, or super weird stuff like Hyperion, right? It was interesting to me thinking about those, right, which can often paint this portrait over a few hundred pages of this is how things go wrong, not because of a machine or an algorithm, but because of us. And so it was interesting in the report, the recent volume six of the report, learning about Sean McGregor's work with the AI incident database, which I loved. And of course, first, because my way of 
dealing with things that are scary is to make jokes. But it reminded me of those signs you see in like offices and the offices is like three days since last workplace safety violation, right? And someone has to wipe off the number and set it back to zero because someone splashed coffee. But in Sean's case, it's like we're talking about someone hacking an entire continent's like eyeball records, right? And you wipe the number and, and go back to zero. But you can tell from the data, right, that there is, as he put it, this uneven distribution of harms basis. And it just comes back over and over again, whatever we're talking about, to the teams that designed these tools not being inclusive enough or even at all. And if that's by design or by accident or just how we're built. And I wonder how much of that sort of thing, the data behind that and the questions behind those, how much that informs what you guys are trying to do. Like, is that a fundamental building block of of how you have these conversations? Yeah, absolutely, right? And I think I think it's it's great that you, you know, pointed to Sean's work. Sean and I have known each other for, for many, many years now and, and it's just such a sharp mind, right? He's he's got all this seems like it. Yeah. And he's got it's a practical tool, right? I think that's I think probably the direction that we were headed in, which is that it's great to get these sort of overarching themes and, and pictures of what might happen, but what is it that we can do? today, right? Mm -hmm. Or tomorrow or next week. And that's, I think, what the incident database helps to bring that gap to action, like helps to bridge that gap to action so that we can we can start to act on some of these insights. And that does inform, uh, to a great extent, the work that we do at the Institute as well, especially on the fundamental research side of things or some of the consulting that we do for large public entities, which is, well, why are some of these things still happening? And, and now we're talking you know, present moment, 2022, right? It's not that we're strangers to the societal impacts of AI, at least I would hope not with all the coverage that we get, especially as you said, you know, Carissa's book on privacy is power, fantastic book, I read it, makes it very, very clear that, you know, this is something that is impacting our daily lives multiple times a day. It's not just that it's a single service that we use and get impacted by, right? But for us, what's been interesting is well, what is the ecosystem within which we're operating, right? And how is that actually shaping or, or failing to shape, uh, rather, these concerns and why action is not being taken? And I think one of the things that I've realized as a part of doing research, as a part of doing some of these consulting engagements, is that we're really not paying enough attention to the organizational aspects of where these products and services are being built and how they're being deployed, how they're being procured, right? Because again, let's also not forget that it's not just some companies who are building and selling products and services, but it's also other organizations who are choosing to procure and then deploy these yeah. products and services because not everybody's got 10 brilliant AI engineers, ML engineers, I should say, rather, and, and you know, PhD folks who are, you know, developing new stuff, right? So then the question is, okay, well, we are aware that these things are happening, then, you know, what gives? Where Where is the gap? And I think it comes from the fact that we've got a fundamental gap today in terms of organizational behavior analysis, in terms of what the organizational incentives are, how employees are functioning within these large organizations, what the sticks and carrots for them are, what are the stated goals and what are the implicit goals, right? Mm -hmm. So the stated goal might be that, hey, we've put out the set of ethics principles or guidelines and my gosh there are uh, i think i was i was just checking this weekend i think over 700 of those sets of principles and guidelines at least uh, if you go and check out oecd.ai they've got a little compilation or well little is an 
understatement is over 700, right? So that's a lot. And let's be practical here. If you're someone who's developing a product or service, you're on a business deadline. Sure. I'm not going to review 700 sets of guidelines to figure out which one works for me. And even if my organization has a set of guidelines, if it's overly broad and vague, me as someone who's writing code, like let's get very practical and concrete here, and I have to make a pull request against our code base mm-hmm. and have someone review it, like what what are some practical things that I should be looking out for, right? As the person who's doing the code review, for example, sure. what are the benchmarks that I should be evaluating against? And And those are things that I think are getting left out. And it's not far-fetched to say, well, hey, we're going to put some of this by the wayside because we still have to meet our deliverables because wouldn't I love to get the bonus at the end of the year? Because what am I getting evaluated on, right? Mm -hmm. As an employee, as a manager of a team, as the head of a business unit, right? What are the things that I'm getting evaluated on? And are ethics and other guiding principles front and center when we're making those evaluations and determinations? Sure. I don't think so. At the moment, that doesn't seem to be the case that they're explicitly outlined in any of those evaluations. And if they are, they're not practical in any way. I mean, we've all worked at companies where you look at the mission statement on on the wall, printed letters, and you're like, okay, but what does any of that actually mean to my day-to-day job? Much less, again, creating these tools that, like you said, are on ridiculous deadlines and affecting millions of people. And you're going, that's how I'm being judged. It makes a lot of sense. I mean, I, I know I harped on it so much and accidentally dominated our discussion the other day with the group about, you know, incentives. But if there's anything that I keep coming back to in my work here across all the different things we talk about, whether it's decarbonization or offsets or infectious disease, you know, or whether to drop masks or AI ethics, you're just constantly going, what are the incentives to employ these things, these tools, these people, these regulations, this legislation, this procurement in an equitable way. Who is designing those incentives? Who gets to design those incentives? Who gets to even be in the discussion of them? And you can just keep backing up and going like, I mean, that's the whole point of the alignment problem, right? Which has been around since before the book, but the book does such an eloquent job of describing like, it's us, right? It's about the operators. And that's where we're not just Again, we can talk about the technology all day and how it might be broken for mortgages or policing or whatever, but whatever. The internet is the mirror of society, right? And without this wide variety of shared values being incorporated, without cooperation, if we don't have those and then seek to employ them in a practical, specific way, like you were saying, you just inherently get, because we've always gotten massively biased tools and systems that just hurt people or reinforce existing marginalizations. It's the story of what we do, and I do believe we can do better, and that's why I love what you guys are doing, because you're constantly asking these questions, going like, why, and we can do better, and how can we help? It's like children, right? It's like small children asking why and why again. And I think we need that a little bit, because it's a sad state of affairs where I think there is this overall diminishment of of attention spans on on really, really difficult long-term problems, right? Because they require a persistent focus, a commitment to see them through. Mm. And with just so much happening in the world, and it's not to say that that hasn't always been the case, right? But I think now we are exposed to all of that 
constantly. And so it's almost like a driver to bring our attention back again and again and say, hey, by the way, let's not forget that these are concerns, that these are the questions that we need to be asking. I mean, think about at the start of the pandemic where, you know, some of the surveillance technology was being rolled out, essentially helped curb the spread of the pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. But we also needed to parallelly ask questions around, well, hey, are we going to dismantle this once the pandemic is over? It isn't over yet, but not easy to do. You know, once you put it, in fact, even if you look at the history of passports themselves, Mm-hmm. They did have their origins in protecting against some of these concerns, right? And and then did they ever get rolled back? No. Now everybody needs to carry one if you're traveling internationally, right? And and we've completely forgotten about the history there because, well, it's it's just an accepted part of society. And, and that's, I think, one of the other things is that we as humans are tremendously adaptive creatures, right? Mm-hmm. We can normalize anything very, very quickly, and so we forget and it fades into the background. So we need folks who ask these critical questions, right? Who, who keep bringing up and questioning what forms the fabric of society and that it's not a given. Nothing is a given. It originated at some point for some reason. Sure. It's just that we've forgotten what the reasons were and why this was put into place. So I think every so often getting a kick in the back and saying, hey, by the way, why do we have this again? And seeing if there's something better out there is a worthy thing to pursue. I I mean, I feel like there's so many ways to agree and expand on that. I think of, you know, you go to a public pool and there's 10 rules that are common to every public pool. And then there's maybe an 11th that seems totally obscure. And you're like, that's there because someone did something that was wholly inappropriate or hurt someone or someone got hurt. And now we have to make a rule because of it. And I think also the other day someone said, oh, so we're going to drop masks on planes, but 20 years later, we're still putting shampoo in bottles that are one ounce big and and taking off our shoes. Our sense of risk balance and overall, again, assessing and going, like you said, we not only can, but we will normalize anything and everything. And so quickly, whether it's data sharing or, you know, Snapchat maps or any of these things, it's incredible. So I am inherently, obviously, a white guy born in the late 20th century in the U.S. And we know that the U.S. doesn't really have any recent or substantive data privacy or AI legislation. Europe, like you were alluding to as as GDPR, or as most people probably understand it, the question, accept all cookies that you see every day and drives you crazy, but that's what that is. I know they've got new insurance regulation, but I'm curious outside the West, are there countries that are handling these conversations and these standards or regulations if they're there in a more progressive or more, there's got to be someone, I hope. Yeah. I mean, for example, India has the PDP coming out, right? So the personal data protection bill that is now being debated and talked about and you know will probably come into effect. Vietnam has got something around privacy as well. And there are lots of other countries that are exploring what legislation in this space can look like. Data privacy being, I think, a natural sort of entry point to mm-hmm. talking about the more pervasive impacts of technology, if we're talking now about, you know, the impacts that AI is going to have, right? So you now have got the Algorithmic Accountability Act from Senator Biden and mm-hmm. and colleagues in the U.S., which we were, we had some contributions there to make. Hey now. Yeah, we were, we were very happy to be invited into the process and we fully endorse it as something that will help to move the industry forward or the ecosystem forward rather, both assessing, but also mitigating the negative impacts of, mm-hmm. of technology. 
You've got similarly the EU AI Act, but again, those are Western examples. Speaking of non-Western examples, then if you look at places like India and Vietnam, what's interesting is that you've got this inheritance that's coming from GDPR as a starting point, right? So Mm -hmm. for better or for worse, the GDPR did set a precedent, right? It sort of woke up in the broadest public consciousness that, hey, privacy is important. Here's how, you know, it's sort of being intruded upon. You need to think about it. You need to take action, right? But I think one thing that's been lost as a part of it, as other countries now almost always default to things that are in the GDPR as a starting point, not to say that the GDPR is bad. It did set a lot of great precedents. But in some situations, we are forgetting that notions of privacy might also have certain cultural specificities, certain localizations that we need to be aware of, cognizant of, and just wholesale copying that and making it your own privacy legislation Mm -hmm. isn't the smartest way to go about it. And I think that's where really we're, one of the papers that we have under review at the moment with a colleague of mine at the Vidhi Center for Legal Policy in India and a colleague from the City University of New York, who is from Vietnam, we've been doing a comparison of upcoming privacy legislations in India and Vietnam against the quote-unquote the global standard at this point, which is GDPR, right? Hmm. The idea is, well, what are some things that are great from that, you know, from inheriting that as a as a standard, as a starting hmm. point? But what are also some other things that we need to consider? As you were talking about it earlier, who are the people who have been invited to the table as these bills, as these legislation, pieces of legislation are being drafted? Who's being left out? What do we need to think about? What are some localizations that we need to think about? And also, what is going to be the impact if we have slightly deferring versions of Mm -hmm. privacy legislations for companies that, let's face it, right, all of them are, are based out of a very small part of the world and technology sort of emanates from there and spreads everywhere else, right? What does that mean then for operating across these jurisdictional boundaries where different legislations apply? Are we going to then have some sort of a lowest common denominator? Lowest in this sense being, I guess, sure, perhaps the stringest common denominator maybe is, is the way to put it, where, where you just don't even think about anything else. You're like, okay, well, what's the most stringent set of legislation, regulation? Let's just comply by that standard and hopefully... Sure works out for the rest. What is one thing that could be acknowledging an enormous amount of differences, again, like you said, from from privacy to ethics, the, the whole anthropology of it, but is there like a baseline that we can at least start with that everyone can agree on? And I imagine even that is incredibly difficult, even if it's just like the right to delete your data, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, again, I don't envy your job con- consulting on these things, but at the same time, it's it's so necessary to keep asking those questions so we can make Again, as we're trying to decide, if decide's the right word, as as we're trying to incorporate more and more nuance to these ethical discussions, which, you know, you can do all day. Philosophers have been doing it for thousands of years, but at the same time trying to point them towards practice because we have to start somewhere. And like you said, GDPR is nowhere near perfect and it can be a sledgehammer and can make competition more difficult in some ways, but none of them are going to be perfect. All of them aren't perfect. So what are these slivers that we can hopefully all agree on, if at all? And I love that idea that you bring up that it makes competition difficult because I think that's one thing that also doesn't get talked about often enough, which is how does it alter the market dynamics, right? For organizations that have tons of money, uh, if you have 25 different legislations, sure, 
they'll just throw more lawyers and more programmers at it and comply with each of those legislations and regulations and continue to have their position in the market. But that forces out smaller actors, smaller players who then have to restrict themselves to perhaps one jurisdiction because they just don't have the resources to be able to comply with Mm -hmm. uh, legislations and regulations across 25 different jurisdictions. So it does have an impact on the market dynamics as well. One of the things that I've been thinking about as we discuss all of these issues is, well, can we create a set of commons, right? Can we create a set of shared patterns, shared tools that are perhaps funded by some of the biggest organizations who have resources, but then who make them open source and accessible and maintained. And then there's a lot to say on the open source front, but continuously maintained so that smaller actors can take those on and we continue to have a competitive market for these products and services. And and it's not that this is a pipe dream and doesn't have any precedent. There's this fantastic group called Tech Against Terrorism, mm-hmm. which actually coordinates several actors who have resources, so big organizations who have resources. They create tools for content moderation, for detection of hate speech, for detecting, for example, if criminal activity is being organized. They make those tools available for organizations who don't have those resources. And then they can use those uh, tools to empower and equip themselves to protect Mm -hmm. against some of these malicious actors as well. So all that to say that this is not without precedent. and, Mm -hmm. And I think it just requires perhaps some willingness, some momentum, a coordinating body that brings together some of these folks and says, hey, by the way, we're not going to continue to fragment the space by bringing in more proprietary tools, services, and compliance mechanisms. But instead, we're going to work towards building a set of commons that any and all of us can use. And let's also not forget that the power, one of the greatest powers of the open source ecosystem is that anybody can go and analyze what's being done. Sure. So I will say this carefully, there is a potential for building consensus because sure. let's also be realistic here that in most cases, open source software also tends to then cluster around a few small set of core maintainers who have the resources and time to continue investing in it. And the rest of the community may or may not fully engage in that consensus sure. process. In your day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month, again, working on these discussions and publishing your research and the conversations and the analysis, but also doing the consulting work um, and legislative stuff. Do you feel like without substantive carrots and sticks, as we talked about, without those incentives, that a commons like that is possible? Or do you feel like we need to crack down on those carrots and sticks first? Because, I mean, you just look at and I'm not trying to be too pessimistic about it, but again, you look at the massive amount of wealth being created off these tools every day from the biggest companies we've ever seen. How incentivized are they to to work on these things, to establish a commons like this, to, to backtrack on some of the things they've seen? And, and by the way, that's acknowledging for all its many, many, many warts to see, you know, for Facebook, they are seemingly walking away from facial recognition in some ways. Again, remains to be seen how that goes. I'm I'm just trying to be a little 
skeptical about it, I guess. No, and, and, and perhaps you're right, right? I mean, at, at what point did that come around in their transformation, right? And and what were the triggers behind those actions are, are opaque to us, right? So I think attributing any kind of intention, good or bad, is, is difficult. It's really unclear sort of how they arrived at that decision and why they arrived at the decision. And maybe they just weren't getting enough business value out of it that they said, hey, Eh, it doesn't hurt. We'll we'll get a quick PR win, and and let's just you know uh, say that we're not going to use it because what were we really getting out of it, right? So that could wholly be the case. I mean, sure. I, I'm not privy to any of that. So you know, the skepticism is perhaps warranted given everything else that we've seen. Let's also not forget that there are well-meaning humans at each and every of these oh, of organizations course. who are trying yeah. to do good stuff, and it's just. To what extent are they shackled, constrained by organizational structures around them? And to what degree do they have agency over it, right? So, but to answer your question, if we do need those carrots and sticks, I think we do, right? Um, the natural state of the ecosystem is always going to be one where you're trying to grab power. You're trying to grab a chunk of that market landscape. Sure. Um, if we're talking about compliance tools, bias mitigation tools, other things, I would rather not hope that, you know, people are, are doing that to, you know, gain market share so that they can, you know, make some money off of it. Because I think these are these are fundamental tools and, you know, services, compliance services, for example, that we would need if we want to ensure that the state of the ecosystem is actually good, right? Sure. And perhaps without directed investment substantial investment mm -hmm. uh, that either gets triggered by carrots and sticks or otherwise, we're just not going to get there, right? Startups are going to still keep coming up with their products and services to mitigate bias, to provide you know privacy, to do this and that. But to what extent are we actually engaging in capacity building, right? This is something that we sure. hear in, in the world of nonprofits a lot, which is, okay, well, how do we build capacity? Right? In, right in NGO work. And, and that's really how I think we need to think about this is how do we build capacity for everybody to be able to enact their duties of sure. building responsible AI, not just those who have the resources, because then that's just repeating the same pattern again, which sure. is centralization of power, homogenization. Yep. And so then what, what did we really achieve? For folks out there, again, you might say, I don't use Facebook. That's fine. They've got WhatsApp is the predominant chat tool across the world. You've got Instagram and all these things. But also, it, it's important, and I can't make this clear enough, this is touching every part of your life, whether you're, you know, part of Facebook or not. I mean, we reported on a few months ago how early in the pandemic, Epic, which is one of the largest electronic health record providers, I can't remember what the other one is that's the second biggest, they implemented some, quote-unquote, AI, really machine learning tools over the past year and just fundamentally realized, and again, it might have been the markup who reported on this, who they just do truly tremendous work there. And I'll find the link and I'll put it in the show notes again. But the point was they just realized like it doesn't work. And we rolled it out without and spent an enormous amount of money and forced these healthcare systems and hospitals and nonprofit hospitals and whatever it may be who are all entirely fragmented, which is an entirely different discussion, data collection on that front, at enormous cost and made decisions on billing and made decisions on how healthcare systems should provide their services and how insurance can be looped in on a tool that just fundamentally didn't work. And it feels like you have to have 
those checks and balances along the way, however they're incentivized or mandated from on top, whether it's internally or externally, from a commons or from regulation or both, it's got to trickle down to someone who goes, you know, before we do this, let's acknowledge the power we have and ask, does this even work? Forget <laughs> Is it biased, you know, for mortgages or policing or whatever that may be? That's a different kind that doesn't work. That is, it's working in a way that is dangerous to a segment of people. This is like, does this actually do what it's supposed to do? Or, of course, an entire another discussion we can have is, do we even understand how it's supposed to work? You know, when you come to this sort of this black box stuff, folks, it touches your everyday life. And I'm not trying to do this in a scary way. Some of these technologies are incredible and they're powerful and the things they can unlock along the way will be, you know, helpful and magnificent and predictive and, and can do things for us. But it's always important to ask these questions. You know, to your point around the use of AI in healthcare, I mean, look at the massive failure of IBM Watson, right? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that was out there. They sucked up a lot of oxygen in terms of funding, in terms of, you know, engaging with hospitals, in terms of consuming media cycles, etc. And what we realized was that, well, none of that actually works at all. Right. And hospitals just chose to disengage. And it has long-term consequences now. Right. Because if anybody else comes along with a product or service that actually works, they're going to be met with a great degree of skepticism because people are going to say, hey, we tried out this IBM Watson thing and they promised a whole bunch of things. They were this giant company. So uh, if they couldn't do it, like, can you? Like, what sure. what is to make us believe that you can do it, right? And so these sorts of failures also have long-term impacts that go beyond just the company or that, you know, sort of bilateral relationship, right? Because it impacts the rest of the the ecosystem. And it, it keeps coming back to this question of organizational incentives and behavior because AI is this exciting new thing, right? At least for a lot of organizations continues to be. And for someone who brings this idea forward as, as the head of a business unit or some other organizational unit and say, hey, we should engage with this external provider for getting these AI services and products into our organization. It's a quick win for them in a sense of trying to show that they're being innovative, that they're thinking mm-hmm. out of the box or whatever other jargon you want to throw at it that you know folks used to evaluate the effectiveness or the innovativeness right. of an organization, right? And I think something that you were saying earlier, which was we should maybe have a chief question asker at any organization who comes in and asks just those pestering questions. It's sure. like, why are we doing this? What's right. going to be the impact? Have you really thought this through? Let's take a second, right? Let's not jump in. Sure. And we need that, right? And, and I'm not saying that, I mean, heck, I work in writing these systems day in and day out. So it's like, you know, I'm, I'm trying to chop off my own legs and, you know, take away my own employment by saying, hey, we don't need people who write code, right? I'm not right. saying that. I'm not anti-technology. I'm no. just saying that, hey, we just need to ask a few questions before integrating it so deeply into mm-hmm. our lives that it becomes almost impossible to extricate ourselves from it. Sure. And we we do a very good job of that as humans, of making it very difficult to back ourselves out of these corners once something becomes inherently a, a part of the fabric of life. So I guess on that note, I was thinking recently about how, not sure how old you might be, I grew up on Prodigy and IRC and Instant Messenger and then digital cameras and 
Then there was like the Facebook and you had to have your college EDU address to sign up. But then there was all this talk of the generation younger me was so much more comfortable online and and just shared more stuff, less worried about privacy, sharing their lives. And now we were the old ones. And now I feel very old every day for a thousand different reasons. But I wonder now with everything that's come out on Facebook and the decision making inside and how that's contributed to certain things, whether it's elections or, or misinformation around vaccines, whatever it might be. I wonder now if that generation is starting to fully understand how all of that sharing and, and their data is being capitalized on and whether that has moved sort of the, the ethical needle for them. And not even, again, just by the biggest companies in the world. And you think about the markup the other day was talking about the $12 billion location data market that's out there. It's astonishing, right? Anyone with any amount of money can can get from those brokers. So I want to pivot that, all of that sort of towards action. And I guess it's two sides of the coin. The first is inherently, what can our community do to protect themselves online to make sure that they're able to use these tools, which can be powerful and helpful, but at the same time, not feel like they're being taken advantage of at every time they drop a marker in a map. And then secondarily, you know, what would you recommend to non-AI people, again, people who aren't writing this code or implementing it, to most successfully instigate conversations like these about a commons internally or externally, about internal AI ethics, principles, and practices inside their own companies. So it's like, on the one hand, how do we protect ourselves? On the, on the other, how do we acknowledge we're going to use these tools, people are going to use these tools, we're going to buy these tools, even if we didn't develop them. What are the practical ethics we should be abiding by to, to use them, but also make sure we're doing it in a way that is equitable and safe? Easy questions, I know. <laughs> and if I had the answer to all of them, right? Um, right. I think the first thing really there is to look at some actionable tools and things that have been put out there, right? So the folks at Mozilla have this great list of things called privacy not included, right? And it's a okay. list of products and services and their privacy ratings, which is super helpful, presents it with a emoji, right? So it's smiling, not smiling, and whatever the gradations between right. those are so very modern for the sure. younger folks yeah. out there relatable and so that's that's one way to to sort of you know step forward really take action and understand hey you know i got this product x from company y where on this list does it rank what are okay its privacy implications right so that's that's one great tool for folks who are perhaps you know not deep into the ai world uh, i gave this tedx talk a while ago on building civic competence in ai where i proposed a set of three questions that can help folks understand the impacts that these technologies have. So the first question is, does this use AI? Second is, does it serve me or the creator of that system? And the third is, could it do better? And it might mm. seem very basic, but right, going in with the theme that you mentioned before of what is very direct and actionable, something that asks us to think about these issues critically, I think this helps to elucidate that very clearly in terms of centering a little bit the locus on yourself in terms of what the impacts are and what actions you can take because i think that's that's been one of the things that you know as much as we would like to hold these powerful actors accountable while that happens we also need to take action on our end sure. right to protect ourselves and for example if you're looking at folks who are 
let's call them digital natives, right? Because they've perhaps grown up with these technologies much younger than I guess both you and I. Mm-hmm. One thing that we need to think about is just it's this point that you alluded to, which is that it's not just big, powerful actors who are shaping our behaviors. It's also think about local influencers, right? Small influencers who are on Instagram, who are on TikTok, and who are driving and shaping our ideas about issues, right? And and those are, I think, also equally subtle because we tend to build what what is called a parasocial relationship with these folks, right? And over time, we forget that they are also putting up a facade of sorts. They are acting, right? They're consistent with the persona that they have online. And they have an agenda that they're trying to drive, right? Which may be explicit, may not be explicit. If your only way of getting news and understanding of issues relies on what influencers are telling you in a 25-second TikTok video, you know, maybe that's that's something where you need to question yourself because they are not experts, right? Like if we're talking about the current, you know, conflict in between Ukraine and Russia, if you don't have prior experience in, you know, international conflict and in international law, uh, in history, right. maybe sure. you don't have the most informed opinion. I'm not saying that that's always the case, but maybe you don't, right? And and so just sure. relying on influencers and not relying on, you know, primary sources, folks who have deep expertise and background uh, can be problematic. And and I think that's to answer your question more succinctly, for, for people who are now coming up, who are digital natives, who are coming up with this technology, just the very critical skill of questioning where you're getting your information from and not letting these parasocial relationships, as an example, overcome your ability to ask those questions, I think is very important. I love that. I think that's all incredibly helpful. I think, as we alluded to at the beginning, I feel like you and I could and maybe should have 10,000 conversations and you can go down all these rabbit holes and again, branches of healthcare privacy, right? Or mortgages or folks' insurance is being used for flood risk and artificial intelligence, machine learning, deep learning, all these things are being used for, for fire risk, right? They're being used for all these different ways that you just don't realize. And again, that approaches your mortgage. And that so it's really important to just keep asking questions and exploring the nuance of these as much as possible. So at least, and Avishek, as we're talking about trying to find across the West and the East and everywhere from these smaller but very tech-heavy countries like Vietnam or look what's happening in, in Taiwan with chips, right? Seeking to find this is there a sliver? Is there a, like you said, common denominator that we could start with? And maybe that's just awareness because, I mean, that's how this whole thing started for me was I was trying to have conversations with friends who were inherently invested in and interested in these topics, right? The macro science-driven but still anthropological questions of the biggest issues of our time. And they weren't getting the information that I was getting because I had just sort of curated a fire hose of the most reputable content to come my way. And they were getting their news from from Facebook, no fault of their own. And it turns out that didn't work out very great for everybody. But also that's why I eventually just like slapped together an email and said, hey, here's the five or ten things you missed. Because selfishly, I just wanted to be able to have informed conversations with folks about these things. And you just not might be aware of why 
you don't get that mortgage or why policing works the way it does or why Instagram wants to build a tool for under 13-year-olds. You know, the more we are just all aware of every action we're putting in, again, you as a user are training that algorithm every day. It matters. Every touch point you put into that is pointing you towards that matrix plugged into the goo where it says, live your life this way, answer this. And sometimes it can be really helpful. And sometimes it can just be too much or used in ways that the person in the research lab that designed it didn't intend for it to be. Or it can be sold without your knowledge. You know, we talked about in the newsletter about how reported 96% of people who when iOS 14.5 came out and they said, do you want this to track you? And you were like, no, absolutely not. Across all these other apps, didn't realize like that really doesn't apply to location in a lot of ways. And that's why there's still this $12 billion market of your location data being sold to anyone who wants to pay for it at any time from these data brokers. And you just have to be aware about that because people aren't going to have conversations, much less take action if they just don't have any idea that it's going on. So I appreciate your commentary of, look, some of these folks on TikTok and and Instagram, some of them are smart and incredible science communicators and or political science or, you know, you saw uh, when the CDC got on, et cetera, et cetera. It can be helpful, but you got to question your sources and you got to question the incentives behind why they're putting themselves out there. Anyways, I'm going to give you the last few questions, then we're going to get you out of here. It's been long enough. These are questions we ask everybody, Abhishek. I don't call it a lightning round, but feel free to not spend all day of them because you've got more important (laughs) things to do. First one, when was the first time in your life when you realized you had the power of change or the power to do something meaningful, either by yourself as a child or with a group or a club or at a company, whatever it might be? When were you like, oh shit, I can can do something here? I can give a recent example. I think uh, in, in 2018, when we were invited to participate in the G7 AI Summit, or rather I should say I was invited by the Canadian federal government uh, to participate in the G7 AI Summit, I realized that the community that we had built up in Montreal to discuss AI ethics had grown so large and was so diverse and had so many great ideas that I could just tap into all of them and carry 400 voices with me into the room. And the real holy smokes moment for me was when I was in that room discussing these issues on the future of work, we realized that the power of those 400 voices was very strong, very well informed as a collective because the insights that we were able to bring were in in a lot of occasions on par, if not better, than what the other experts in the room had to bring. Mm. So that was that was a wake up moment for me that the community that we've built really had the power to to bring informed discussions to to the front. And at the same time, a realization that yes, uh, I'm in a privileged position where I do get invited to these sorts of things, but it's also my responsibility to then carry those voices with me into the room so that we can all share uh, in, in, in shaping those technical and policy measures. I love that. That's awesome. I mean, and that is the reason to build these communities because those communities are out there and those folks are out there just yearning to be part of something like this to contribute in some small way and say, this is my lived experience or this is how I'm trying to implement a tool like this or asking questions like this. And I love that you're the, the figurehead for all of it. The man standing against the Terminator. Abhishek, who is someone in your life that has positively impacted your work in the past six months. Can we talk about authors who have positively impacted us? Because, I, I mean, they're not directly in my life. Yeah, absolutely. 
So I would say uh, Shane Parrish, the guy from sure. Farnham Street. So he's written this uh, set of books called The Great Mental Models. And man, they've been transformative in the way I look at, you know, we were talking about questioning the fabric of society and how things come about. I think by far that has been the single biggest impact for me over the last six months. And he runs, um, and not, you know, I don't get any commission for this whatsoever, but fantastic set of books and he runs his community uh which is the farnham street community absolutely fantastic place to be in to learn from folks so i would say yeah shane parish probably i love that i am too an, an acolyte and i've tried to just suck up as much knowledge and and perspective from from that community and i've got those literally those hardcover books red books over there in my on my bookshelves uh right now they're they're fantastic even if you just dip in and out of them i mean what you can pull away to apply to your everyday life is truly helpful abhishek what's your self-care what are you doing after i tormented you with this conversation how do you take the load off good home-cooked meal man all right every day is, are you cooking well, my parents are visiting, so it's my mom. Uh, so even better. Oh, nice. Very nice. <laughs> That's yeah. a real win. I love that. And last one, coming back to authors, and we've got a whole list up on Bookshop of all the recommendations. A book in the past year that has opened your mind to a topic you hadn't considered before, or it's actually changed your thinking in some way. I guess I'll have to repeat what I said before, but it's it's got to be the great mental models have just awesome. been so fantastic, right? And I know I'm a little late to that game because those books have been out for a little bit, but they, they're just straight up there. They're fantastic. They're timeless. So. I love it. That's awesome. Well, we will definitely give Shane a shout out and throw those on our bookshop list. I don't even know if they're available there. If they're not available there, then we'll put a link to them on the Farnham Street website. Abhishek, where can the people follow you and your crew of X-Men in Montreal? <laughs> so the best way to stay in touch with the work that we do is uh, the AI Ethics Brief. If you punch that into your favorite search engine, it hopefully should bring it up. Uh, but for those who, who want to know, it's at uh, brief.montrealethics.ai. And I'm sure Quinn's going to throw in a link. Personally, for me, you can find me on Twitter, on LinkedIn, and all of those places. Uh, uh, if you can't find me on the internet, that I don't know. You just shoot me a message, let me know, and I'll, I'll I'll sort of get on there because I think I'm pretty searchable on the internet. But if I'm not, well, you let me know. Well, I'm so delighted that you're in charge of the internet. It's the best decision <laughs> humanity could make at this point. Thank you so much for your time today. I sincerely appreciate it for all your work. Truly, I have selfishly gained so much and feel like I've I've leveled up quite a bit on this stuff from from reading your work, not just the big reports, but every week with the newsletter, which I inhale and annotate as as much as possible. So thank you guys for for everything you do. It's our pleasure. And thank you for Quinn for being such a fantastic communicator. I think we need folks like you who bring the message out to everybody in the world about asking those critical questions and, and taking action. It's not just about asking, but it's also about acting. Thank you for all that you do as well. Trying, trying. Thanks, thanks to coffee. <laughs> thanks to our incredible guest today. And thanks to all of you for tuning in. We hope this episode has made your commute or awesome workout or dishwashing or fucking dog walking late at night that much more pleasant. As a reminder, please subscribe to our free email newsletter at importantnotimportant.com. It is all the news most vital to our survival as a species. And you can follow us all over the internet. You can find us on Twitter at Important Not Imp. Just so weird. Also on Facebook and Instagram at Important Not Important. Pinterest and Tumblr, the same thing. So check us out, follow us, share us, like us. You know the deal. 
And please subscribe to our show wherever you listen to things like this. And if you're really fucking awesome, rate us on Apple Podcasts. Keep the lights on. Thanks. Please. <laughs> and you can find the show notes from today right in your little podcast player and at our website, importantnotimportant.com. Thanks to the very awesome Tim Blaine for our jam and music, to all of you for listening, and finally, most importantly, to our moms for making us. Have a great day. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.